Welcome to the Conscious Marketing Podcast, where marketers come to look themselves in the mirror and discover how to unlock their superpowers. In this episode, we dive right into the nuts and bolts of our current industry scandal and ask, should marketers come clean? We're joined by Data Ninja Chris Penn from Brain Trust Partners to reveal the truth about data privacy, GDPR, and where marketers might be crossing the line. Chris Penn is the co-founder and chief innovator at Brain Trust Insights. He's a digital marketer, best-selling author, keynote speaker, and ninja for real. Chris is a leading authority on digital marketing and marketing technology. As a recognized thought leader, author, and speaker, he has shaped four key fields in the marketing industry, Google Analytics adoption, data-driven marketing and PR, modern email marketing, and artificial intelligence, machine learning, and marketing. You can learn more at BraintrustInsights.com. Jeff Livingston is the founder of Livingston Campaigns and Livingston Photography. He's a marketing leader, a buzz creator, a published author, and a social fundraiser. As an online marketer and social fundraiser, Jeff has helped brands and nonprofits raise more than $225 million online. And now he leverages the gig economy to make CMO level talent and marketing project execution available for companies of all sizes. You can learn more at livingstoncampaigns.com. And that brings us to me. I'm Nicole Kelly, the founder of the Conscious Marketing Institute, a marketing visionary, industry innovator, and quantum healer. I have a track record for creating evolutionary change in the marketing industry. As an early pioneer in social media measurement, I wrote the book, How to Measure Social Media, and created many of the data standards that are still in use today. But then, life took an interesting turn, and after three minor strokes and a near-death experience that were caused from over three decades on the hamster wheel of success, I founded the Conscious Marketing Institute, where we have a mission to inspire marketers to unlock their superpowers so together we can help humanity step into its full potential. Learn more at ConsciousMarketingInstitute.com. Please join Jeff and I in a warm welcome for today's guests, and together let's create an industry-wide evolution of consciousness. Hi, and welcome to the Conscious Marketing podcast season two. I am so excited to be here with a new format, a new approach, and what I believe will be an even more impactful show. I'm joined by Jeff Livingston and Chris Penn, who you've already been introduced to. So let's get to it because this is a packed show. Today, we're here to talk to you about data. And as marketers, what is our responsibility in data? So we're going to discuss the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica I guess you could call it scandal, if you will, not really. Um, basically, the behind the scenes on that is that Cambridge Analytica purchased Facebook data from uh, a Cambridge academic named Alexander Kogan and his company, Digital Life. That data include, included Facebook user profile information for approximately 300,000 quiz takers and their friends, which ultimately resulted in, I think it was like 50 million profiles being scraped. And uh, the conversation is really not about the 300,000 quiz takers, but it's the 49 million other people who didn't provide access, provide consent on whether or not they wanted their data to be scraped. And then to go a little step further, they also then use this data to potentially sway the election in the United States and many elections across the world. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to dive deep into that, not necessarily talking about the, um, the, the fact that what Cambridge Analytica did, you know, in buying the data is the piece that's illegal. The actual scraping of the data was within Facebook's terms and conditions at the time. They've since changed. We're actually going to take it a little step further and, and talk about, like, what does this really mean for marketers and has the veil of what we've been doing for a really long time been pulled down? And then Chris, um, I'm so excited to have you here because you are, oh man, you're just like one of the best data ninjas in the business. And when I found out that you had launched your own consultancy, I was so excited because I get questions all the time of like, who do I send, who do I go to for data? And I'm like, now I have the perfect person. So can you give us a little rundown on GDPR and, uh, and what we're going to talk about with that? 
Sure. GDPR stands for the General Data Protection Regulation. It's an EU regulation that is extraterritorial, which means it applies to anybody uh, who is doing business in the European Economic Area, the EU. Uh, it has a number of provisions, such as uh, requiring consent for both uh, the uh, the shortening of forms. Uh, you've seen the 72-page terms of service for some applications, or if you install a particular piece of Office software and you were to print out the user license for the Office software, you could actually make a very lovely chair out of it. Um, there's so much of it. But also, it requires consent for use cases. So if I collect your email address for my newsletter, I cannot then use it for retargeting unless I also obtain your consent to use it for retargeting. So every use case uh, must be acquired separately. Um, there are strong provisions for uh, data protection and breach notification. You must have uh, policies in place that, that address and publicize a data breach within 72 hours. And your systems must be designed with privacy First and foremost, it can't be an add-on. Uh, it requires uh, both right to access, a right to be forgotten, and also a right to move data. So what this means is that uh, a company must, upon request, uh, deliver the data that it has about a person to that person free of charge in an electronic format. They may also, the requirement also, the regulation requires you to also transmit that data to another company uh, upon request. So if you were in Paris, and you told Facebook, I want you to give all my data to Twitter, Facebook would have to comply in a, in a format. Uh, you could also, if you were in Paris, say, I uh, request Facebook that you erase all data about me and provide proof that you've done so. And that's part of the regulation. Uh, and of course, for companies that are larger, over 250 employees uh, or 5,000 data subjects, you must have a data protection officer uh, and probably a chief data officer. What's important that almost everyone gets wrong about GDPR is this. It applies to EU data subjects. If you read the regulation carefully, EU data subjects is not the same as EU citizens. EU data subjects refers to anybody who is physically located within the EU. So, you know, Jeff, if you went to Paris, while you are in Paris, you are an EU data subject. And, you know, anything that your company does with you, HR information, things like that, must also uh, apply. GDPR now applies to your company and those systems while you're physically located there. So uh, it applies to citizens, obviously, people who are there for any reason while they are on EU soil, um, people of any status. So citizen, non-citizen, migrant, protected class. Uh, if you are a Syrian refugee uh, who is in Munich, guess what? GDPR applies to that person. Now, for marketers, I think, well, I don't do any business in the EU. It, the, the GDPR requirement says you must uh, provide protection for any goods or services. It does not say financial transactions, which means that if your website accepts, you know, people registering for a free ebook or something like that, you know, with all the marketing campaigns we love doing, GDPR now applies to you. Uh, if that if that data subject, if they fill, if the, you know, an American student who's in Berlin fills out a form on your website. GDPR now applies to you. And for those folks who think, ah, you know, I'll just pay the fines. Uh, no, you won't. <laughs> per incident, per infraction, GDPR's penalty is up to 2% of annual revenue. And for data breaches, uh, the penalty is up to 4% of your annual revenue. So it doesn't, obviously, if you breach, you know, 25 people's privacy with a, with a data breach, guess what? You are giving 100% of your revenue to the, the European Union. Um, and this is, the other thing is, this is not something to lobby against. This is not something as perspective. This went into effect two years ago. Uh, the enforcement penalties take effect on May 25th, which is why we're hearing about this now. Uh, after May 25th, 2018, the EU will take companies to court. So the funny thing about that is we've had two years to prepare for this, but now everyone's scrambling going, oh my gosh, now we're going to have to pay money, which shows you where our, our real thoughts are <laughs> as companies. Yep. So Jeff, yeah. that was, that, or uh, Chris, that was awesome. Uh, a, a great summary. And I didn't realize that it, uh, it applied to anyone on their soil. So we'll get into that a little, a little more deeply. Um, Jeff, do you want to talk about kids and how this extends not only to adults, but what are we doing with children and how are we protecting them? 
This is a, a really interesting time because a lot of the data breaches that we've experienced, including what happened with Facebook, is because of opt-in technologies where basically we single sign-on with our Facebook profile or our Twitter profile or LinkedIn or whatever it might be, and we basically surrender our entire data and all of our friends' data perhaps at the same time. And uh, so when you look at what's happening with children, uh, we're actually creating another generation of people that are willing to surrender their data and they're very young in exchange for free content. Now, there used to be a, a law, it's still in place, it's called COPA, or Children's Online Privacy Protection Rule. And what it does is it basically says anybody 13 or under, you have to protect their data, you can't exploit it, uh, you actually have to have parental consent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what uh, a lot of the digital content companies have done, including some of the more established players like PBS and uh, you know, NPR, et cetera, uh, Nickelodeon, they have you opt in as a parent. And when you opt in as a parent for this free content, you're giving away your children's usage patterns. In addition, for example, with like uh, YouTube, which is in a lot of trouble for this right now, I mean, they have a ton of kids' content on their site. In fact, uh, my daughter, who found out we were podcasting today, said, oh, my God, my dad's going to be on YouTube, right? And, you know, to a seven-year-old, that's awesome. But think about that. A seven-year-old's like, my dad's on YouTube. Well, that means she has accessibility to it. And when she has accessibility to it, that's my fault, right? However, YouTube is gathering her data, seeing which uh, kid programs she's watching. And believe it or not, yes, we are getting suggestions about which programs we should see. We get those alerts just like everybody else. So what's really happening is we have a pseudo opt-in system for kids, just like we have for adults. Their data is getting exploited. They're getting served programming. And in some cases, like YouTube, you don't have the protections like you would in a normal kid site. And these kids are getting access to adult content. For example, um, I think there was a, a recent murder and YouTube had to pull it down. It was on their system. Uh, people complained about that. That's the kind of stuff the kids have access to now because of the opt-in type of environment we have. Now, the channels like YouTube and Facebook have kids messenger and kids YouTube versions, but let's be honest, most parents don't even know that they're out there. They're not using them. And so uh, we have several uh, pseudo legislations which are looking at opt-in plus versions of data privacy, but nowhere uh, near the level of protection that Europe is looking at for our consumers. Awesome, thank you. So let's let's take the global look at this, right? Let's let's take a look at not only what the regulations are saying, but let's just talk about from a marketing perspective in general and look at this through the eyes of the consumer. I did a little just survey of my friends and I started you know, talking about that as marketers, this is like, especially when you look at the Facebook and um, Cambridge Analytica thing, you're looking at GDPR, then you start getting into kids. We start to ask questions like, well, what do we have access to? And do consumers know that we have access to it. So I did a little survey of some friends and I said, did you know that when you fill out a form on a website to get a free ebook or to watch a video that we can then take that information and we can merge it with other data that anytime you've been to our website, we now know every page that you've visited. We can heat map where you've been on the page that we can then go buy a mailing list and find out what your income is, what your nationality is, what your religion is, how many kids you have, possibly what school you went to. If we have any of your social profiles, we can then find you on not only Twitter and Facebook, but LinkedIn. Now we know where you work and everyone's jaw dropped. No, like no one had any idea that that was the level of information and sophistication of data in the marketing industry. And so I guess the first question is, you know, what, like, do you think consumers really understand the true breadth of data? Because I heard this where it's like, oh, you know, they know they're giving us their information, but do they really understand what information we have and how it's being used? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the greater challenge and the one I would put to marketers is it's something that we talk about all the time. IBM had a, a fun stat. 90% of the data that companies collect never gets used. It sits in the equivalent of a desk drawer somewhere. So we may be collecting all this information, but if, unless you're actively using it for analysis, what's the point? Um, do I need to know what school you go to or what religion you are? Unless I'm selling religion, the answer is probably no. Um, 
on the other hand, we're not doing a good job of, of using the data that, that could be useful. Uh, a big part of it's behavioral, right? So if you're on my website and you visit my services page and then my team page and then my contact page, I should be retargeting you because that is a pattern of behavior that indicates you are probably thinking about buying something, right? On the other hand, if you just visit a blog post and you leave, probably not. I don't need to know anything about you except that you behaved in a way that matches a likely buying pattern to, to be effective as a marketer. So in the age of GDPR and privacy shield and stuff, there's this concept that I've been trying to get people to, to understand. It's called a minimum viable data. What's the minimum amount of data you need to do your job? Use that instead of collecting every stuff that you don't need because all you're doing is setting yourself up for a massive uh, data breach at some point. I can't compromise your identity as an attacker if all I have is what pages you visited. Yeah. That's fair. It's a really good point. I think uh, it's a, if I may, I mean, it's an interesting time. And I think when we look at what happened with Russia and this particular situation and the outrage that the public expressed, to me, I, I think it's a digital literacy issue. We, we don't educate people on how to use the internet. We don't educate people on what's happening on these sites. Um, we just say, hey, this content's for free. You have a bazillion long uh, a sentence long disclaimer that you have to sign and all of a sudden your data's gone. And, and when you have people that are basically illiterate in a digital sense, this kind of thing happens. They express outrage. It reminds me a lot of the credit card statement outrage that you would see 20 years ago when people all of a sudden would get hit with 25% rates and freak out. Well, you signed it. I mean, like you, you signed it. You put your signature on it. You gave away your social security information. You took the money. You bought the stuff. And now you're complaining about that. And I get it. It's, it's not fair. It's not what you thought it was. But we have a larger societal issue in that we aren't really educating people on how to use the medium. Um, right. The other issue, I think, is the immense amount of pressure, which kind of speaks to what Chris just talked about, the immense amount of pressure marketers are under. Uh, marketers are being forced to be held accountable, and they have less respect than anybody else in the executive suite because of the fuzziness of the various activities that we engage in whether it's Twitter or Facebook and the social channels or email marketing, et cetera, et cetera. There are different levels of accountability you can provide, but trying to explain to an executive team your secondary and tertiary touches and how that impacts your ecosystem. And yeah, we have to do this middle content in order to compel people. If you don't have precise data that shows that, even though you know it's true, you're going to get laughed out the door. That's the yeah. world we live in. And so marketers are taking every piece of data they can and are trying to find it and are often getting lost in their own mess. Uh, but right. that's not going to stop them from gathering this data. They feel compelled to get that data because of the pressures they're receiving from the executive team. Right. And we're also like, we don't know what's going to come in the future. Right. So like, I know even, you know, when I was speaking a lot about data, I would say like you collect everything because you don't know the question you're going to get downstream. But then when you start to look at this and, and, you know, this is the conscious marketing podcast, right? So we start to look at like, what can we do versus what should we do? And I love that Chris brings in like, you know, the real future of marketing is to start to look at behavior, not demographics. And, you know, I had this um, interesting conversation where I was looking at like all the ways that we segment advertising, right? How do we segment Facebook ads? We do it by where you live, what your interests are. Um, we, we can do income, we can do religion, we can do all of these things which try to tell us who you are as a person, but in doing that, I, like I have an ethical issue with it because if I were to do the same ad and target people for employment, it would be highly illegal, but we do it for marketing and it's considered okay. And then when you look at things like the messages we send, just look at like alcohol brands, for example, you know, you've got mad dog being, you know, promoted into inner city, but then you have wine being promoted into suburbs, you know? So as we look at this, I think this conversation over looking at behavior versus demographics is a huge push forward for the industry. Look at My Little Pony. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite examples, Mark Schaefer talks about this in a couple of his books. <clears throat> there is, if you targeted based on your assumptions about demographics, you would target My Little Pony 
merchandising to uh, children, mostly girls, uh, ages six to twelve. Right? That's that's the assumed demographic. There is a massive, lucrative niche of uh, single men aged twenty-five to forty. They are called bronies. Uh, <laughs> Starting with the Rock. <laughs> who, will, who will spend 100x what a 12-year-old will spend. Um, but if you target only on the assumption of the demographic, you miss that market segment. If you target on the behavior, you don't care who's on the website as long as they buy something, right? And, and so the, other, the flip side of, of, of the, the regulatory and, the, and, and the, the danger side is the op- you miss the opportunity of who might buy your stuff. There are, I'm sure there are plenty of people uh, who live in the suburbs who uh, are you know, affluent that probably would buy a bottle of Mad Dog at least once a year for like high, high school and college reunion because it brings back fond memories of incapacitation. <laughs> and it also actually tastes fairly good. <laughs> I don't, if I've had it, I don't recall. Uh, <laughs> they tend to do free flavors. It's nice. <laughs> All right. Um, but yeah, focusing on the behaviors is, and, and focusing on, on not on, on your assumptions. I mean, that's the other issue that is endemic in marketing is we make a lot of assumptions without analyzing the data at all, and mm-hmm. it burns us over and over again. Yeah. So I think it's interesting as, you know, so we move into this kind of experiential thing. Well, that brings up, okay, you don't care who it is unless it's a 12 year old, right? Unless it's a 10 year old. Now we have some um, onus on us to do things like ensure that people are of age to be buying our products. And, um, and so like in looking at that, you know, who really bears the responsibility for compliance and transparency with GDPR? Like, is that going to set the groundwork for global accountability? Because it's not only if you market in the EU, it's really if anyone is in the EU. And what is our responsibility for compliance and transparency? Is it the software vendor's problem or is it ours as marketers? So I can tell you from a regulatory perspective, uh, one of the provisions we forgot to mention is in addition to fines, your executives can be charged with criminal penalties and imprisoned. So the C-suite uh, has a personal interest in enforcing this regulation. I think that's so smart. I mean, I think, we, I think that's so smart. I mean, when you think about the way this problem is really being propagated and you look at some of the ethical issues that are coming out of Silicon Valley right now, uh, I mean, this is an issue that has to deal with the way management works and basically machine gunning entire audience profiles to get the amount of business that they want and churn and burn. And if you don't make the C-suite accountable, if you don't make the, the shareholder accountable, then this is not going to go away. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I just look at it as like, who is best positioned to actually resolve this, right? Who's best positioned to take a leadership stance in this, both for the consumers, but also from a regulatory perspective. And I I feel like it's the software vendors, you know, they have the, the people who can make these changes. They can make them globally across their platform relatively easily compared to a marketer trying to make changes across multiple platforms. And I really hope that you know, like the use case I would love to see is that HubSpot, Salesforce, you know, all of these different providers, these automation providers that connect all of these systems that control our landing pages, our email programs, and many times are also playing in our advertising, come forward and say, hey, we're going to take a stand on this and we're going to be proactive. So you can come to our website and you can search our entire database for wherever your information lies. And then you have the ability to edit change, delete records for individual companies that are our customers. So this would be a global change across, I can go to Salesforce and if I have a hundred records across a hundred Salesforce clients, I can globally start to manage my information. And I I feel like that's really the only way that this is going to have a true impact where consumers have control of their data. Because again, if I, I don't even know how many advertisers have my data. I went and looked at Facebook and I was like, okay, I I never really did quizzes. That wasn't my gig, but I totally used OAuth to sign in to many websites. And that is actually where I I know all of us. I had 197. 200. 
200. <laughs> and the interesting thing to me was that the biggest data breaches, in my opinion, of what I thought I signed up for versus what was actually delivered was with OAuth. It wasn't with my little, you know, name, name quizzes or whatever. It was that I used my Facebook profile to log into someone else's website for convenience. And then they scraped all of my profile information, all of my friends and ridiculous levels of information. And we know that when that screen comes up, it's like three checkboxes, right? Like it's not saying, Hey, we're taking everything and running with it. You know, the conscious marketing podcast is sponsored by the conscious marketing Institute. Learn more at ConsciousMarketingInstitute.com. Are you ready to go further? Check out the latest free masterclasses and upcoming courses. Learn more at ConsciousMarketingInstitute.com. Are you loving what Jeff is laying down? You should hire him. Learn more at LivingstonCampaigns.com. I really like seeing something happen that impacts people. There's nothing quite like building a product or a service or helping a cause where you get to see the customer or the end user really feel awesome or smile because this changed the way they think about the world. When you do something like that, that has lasting impact. And there's only three types of campaigns you can buy, fundraising, product launch, or some major corporate initiative. Learn more at livingstoncampaigns.com. And now let's get back to the show. It's not saying, hey, we're taking everything and running with it. You know? <laughs> you hear something crazy? Think about this. All of your children, 70% of children across America use Google apps at school to sign in and do their homework at home every single day. Wow. Think about that. I, I, well, I do think it's an interesting conversation because right now Facebook is under fire, but I think that the minute that this opens up to Google and YouTube, the world is going to change very fast because Google has more information on us than I think any other com com company in the world. I mean, Chris, what do you think? Well, have you read the book, Everybody Lies? I think it's a, a fantastic, uh, uh, if you have not read the book, it's a, a data dive into all the things that people type into Google search. You ask, people ask questions of Google. They would never dare ask an, another living human being. Um, that one of the most prominent questions to tell uh, is by men asking about the uh, average length of a certain part of their body. Um, again, <laughs> that you wouldn't necessarily ask another living person, but you ask search engines. Well, of course, that's all tied to your search history. Your email runs through Google. Your, uh, you know, your DNS in many cases. So does Google mark complex at that point? <laughs> it's complicated. No, but I bet you the ads change. Uh, <laughs> and. What's interesting is that in watching the GDPR rollout, what's happening because of the complexity of, of global trade is that the tech companies are, are telling end users of like Google Analytics, okay, we have done our inter internal compliance and now we have enabled these controls for you to change your specific marketing about how you will do compliance for for this. And you know, the day that email went out to all Google Analytics users, I had a like a pile of emails in my inbox saying, what does this mean? I said, well, it means you need to do your own compliance work now. So even though the tech companies provide the infrastructure, we as, as marketers have the obligation to also adhere to the regulation. And I'm not seeing a whole bunch of people doing that. So how would they do that, Chris? Like, what do you recommend in terms of like, what are our first steps that we need to take? I mean, I'm assuming that we just go GDPR compliant across the board because it's the safest way. But then what does that really mean? And what are the tactical things that we need to do to implement that? Well, first, you got to read the regulation, which nobody does. Because um, <laughs> the website that the EU publishes is actually pretty clear. Um, and then I would recommend going through a GDPR assessment. There are some great free quizzes from reputable companies like IBM that will walk you through here are the, you know, the five parts of GDPR compliance you need to go through. And of course, they will try to sell you something um, at, you know, at, at very, very high prices to do so. But the, the templates are good enough, for, especially for like a small business. Um, and then the first places you start are things like uh, your your intakes, right? Where you fill out forms and things. You have to now have 
clear privacy statements. Your privacy policy needs an update to explain where data is stored, processed, et cetera. And so there's there's a long list of things to do. Uh, I feel like I should have like a big warning sign here for all of us saying none of us, uh, I don't know, I don't know about the two of you. I am not a lawyer. I don't even play one on the internet. <laughs> um, and the proceeding and the following do not constitute legal advice. Please talk to an actual lawyer with some trade expertise about your implementation of GDPR because doing it wrong gets you sued. Right. And I mean, you don't have much time. I mean, what is it? May 25th? Is that the date? So um, we're recording this on April 30th. It won't be released for a couple of weeks. So by the time you get this, it's going to be like a week um, for you to actually comply. So I hope people are doing their work now and actually taking a serious look at it. The reality is that when May 25th hits, the uh, the time frame for the for I guess enforcement to take place. I mean, ever there's going to be so many people in violation in the beginning. I think you pretty much have a month or two to really get your act together. But the big ones are that you need to actually ask for consent, and you need to ask for consent in a really clear way. Your terms and conditions aren't going to be anymore. It needs to be black and white English, really like tailored to people who don't understand marketing and who don't understand data. And you need to say what you're collecting, why you're using it. And they need to say, yes, it's okay for you to use it. And as a marketer, I would say also, it, it's important to explain why you're collecting the data. How are you going to make this a better user experience for them by collecting this data? Because when you give that long list, it's a little intimidating to someone who didn't even know you had access to all of that stuff. So what is the benefit to the end user for, for providing that data to you? And then get a simple yes or no, and then honor that yes or no. I think, honestly, like every person who comes to your website should be getting a pop-up for probably the unforeseeable future saying, here's how we collect data. Here's why we collect it. And are you okay with it? And if they say no, then you better have that mechanism in place that you stop collecting data, including cookies. I mean, this goes beyond just filling out a form. This is like also getting into cookie tracking. Just imagine you were trying to explain it to the Senate. That's how you should think about your privacy policies. <laughs> right. So let me get this clear, Zuckerberg. You would support legislation. Senator, we run ads. Yeah, let me ask you that six times. Um, and also, like, I think it does get into, like, really as marketers, the industry is changing pretty rapidly. And consumers' knowledge about the industry, as well as consumers' attempts to avoid marketers are like increasing, right? Like ad blockers are at an all time high. Consumers are saying we don't want your marketing. And so I, I think we, we're also at this point where, you know, as an industry, it's time for us to also be conscientious of the people on the end of this equation and that we hold some responsibility for the education of them. Would you agree, Jeff? Like I, who else is going to educate them? Yeah, I, I think it gets down to value too. I think we've already touched on that indirectly, but Getting brand value and having brand trust requires you to do this the right way. And, and I think in the United States in particular, especially with brands that are local to this country and not international, these brands are not going to comply unless they're very good ethical brands that are committed to providing outstanding service and care about the customer first. I mean, remember back in the social media days when this thing really first started to break open? Back in the old day, Chris, remember that? I can't, man. But like, you remember like uh, the voice of the customer and how that was a huge issue and for Dell and Network Solutions and for all these brands 10 years ago where they were like, we're committed to serving the customer relentlessly and giving them whatever they need. And that's how they restored their brand reputations. We're at a place right now that People don't trust marketers. They shouldn't trust us until the marketer demonstrates to them over and over and over again, consistently through time, that they're going to, one, provide value, and two, they're not going to exploit them. Agreed. And I think that um, it, we're in that, like, the proof is in the pudding right now. It's like we've been talking about things like authenticity and transparency since all of us, like, entered the market back in the, you know, late 2000s. And uh, I think I came in in 2009. You guys were before me, probably 2007 or so. Um, you know, we had these conversations. Gray hair, gray hair everywhere. <laughs> I have gray hair now. It's like, it's freaking me out a little bit. I'm like, but now apparently it's cool to have gray hair. So I'm thinking about leaving it. Um, but yeah, like, you know, we entered and it was this 
big conversation everybody was so excited about social media because it was the first time we could have a conversation with our consumers online we could we could ask them questions and they would actually reply and since then i would say that the whole social media conversation has really shifted into much more of a distribution platform much more of an advertising platform that two-way conversation isn't really happening the way that it used to even in groups you know like i um at the we were at the mid-atlantic marketing summit jeff and i asked the question of linkedin of like what happened to groups man like they used to be cool now you go in and it's just like a, a dead zone of everybody promoting their own stuff and so we're seeing that across the board and to really engage consumers i think it's time to start asking them questions about what they actually want again and being authentic and being transparent and stepping in front of this and saying hey we actually care about the impact we have as a company and we want to do things in a way that is respectful of our customers and is honorable not only to our company for its its impact on profit and on revenue but is honorable to humanity and is honorable to the world and to the universe as a whole well i remember uh when this was first breaking and i was kind of uh I was feeling my oats with the Clue Train manifesto and how everything was going to be about the customer and how this was going to change everything. And uh, Scott Baradell, who runs Idea Grove, is a great guy. Uh, Scott commented on a post I wrote and said to me, <clears throat> Jeff, don't kid yourself. This is going to be all about how corporations can exploit the web. And, and he was right. I mean, we've basically entered an area of, or an era of exploitation, of you know, algorithm-driven exploitation and we're moving further and further into that as we move into artificial intelligence which will take away some of these marketing problems that uh people seem to have and will center in on the behaviors that chris was talking about and, and so you know as this continues to go further and further people are going to be repelled and, and i think that's always the reaction is that when marketers take one action and they beat it into the ground customers get repelled and I think that's why we see more dark web activities these days. I see we, I think we see more and more people using other networks. And for me, the question is, as this gets worse or uh, we change our behavior, how will customers react? What's going to force them, the brands, to change? It's going to be the customer behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, the good news is that AI will solve a lot of that because <clears> – <throat> One of the problems we have as marketers is we are uh, merely human and we don't scale very well. Um, and so all of our terrible marketing and, and you know, Sally Soccer Mom personas uh, will go out the window because you can actually do legitimate, useful one-to-one -one personalization. There's a great experiment. If you want to try it, go to um, Google for Watson Conversational Ads. and You can have a conversation conversation with an advertisement where you tell Watson your favorite ingredient, you know, sriracha or whatever, and based on time of day, weather, uh, past history and stuff, it will come up with a new recipe just for you uh, at that moment. And it's legitimately yours. It also warns you it has not been kitchen tested. Uh, you may want to use common sense before making it. <laughs> but <laughs> the ability for machines to interact with people uh, will be a major step forward for marketing because I honestly, like Jeff said, our marketing is terrible, right? It provides no value. Uh, it, it, it's just sort of yelling at people. If the, the general experience is terrible and an AI can provide a mediocre experience, we're going to make the customer delighted on our very existence just by getting rid of our, our terrible human scale marketing and moving to AIs. And, the good news for marketers is that the tools to do this are getting easier and easier every day. I was at um, uh, Think the Think conference uh, last month, and there's this technology called deep learning that is re used to be really, really, really hard to do. Um, I used to have a poster on my wall that would check off of things that uh, I still didn't know how to do, and. Uh, and at this event, you know, they showed off this new uh, studio product, uh, IBM Watson Studio, where you just drag and drop the pieces you want, and it does all the coding and stuff behind the scenes and assembles a learning computer for you. And you're like, so I could just check off that entire poster of things I didn't know how to do because now it's, it is as simple as a kid's programming language. So once people learn how to think about solving the problems, they can have the machines write the code and build legitimately useful value-based marketing with this technology because you don't have to you don't have to settle for crappy 
marketing automation anymore. You'll be able to actually make stuff that people want. Well, and in and, and a way that will actually scale. I mean, I think, you know, we've talked about one-to-one -one personalization for a really long time, and we've done a reasonable job of what we call one-to-one -one as like one-to-one -to, -one to a segment, right? Like we're going to make this just for, you know, those who live in this area. We're going to make this just for you based on your title and we're going to make it resonate. But we've really never gotten to the point where our whole website changes based on everything that we know about you. And I think AI will allow us to start to get there. The question starts to come in of what happens when the machine gets it wrong. What happens when the machine puts something in front of you that's completely insensitive, either culturally or um, in any way, right? Like, I mean, I just look at uh, the YouTube example that you gave, Jeff, of, you know, they've talked about uh, in YouTube kids, they've had pornographic material show up because it was something for My Little Pony and it was a brony. <laughs> promotion and it ends up in front of a bunch of kids so <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you deal with with that where you have this product that has these two audiences who like it for very and i'm not saying all bronies like to have sex with my little ponies but there oh is my a segment I, 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 and this is what i found out about bronies. As, a, as a father of a little girl i'm just horrified right now i know but this it's the, it, it is the reality, right? So like, how does AI accommodate for something like that? You're gonna have the opposite problem. You're not, mm -hmm. yeah, yes, in the beginning, you're gonna have, you know, tuning as the machines get smarter. But the, your, the opposite problem is, it, it's sort of like the target uh, advertising problem, the case from a couple of years ago, where um, they're, they're very early machine learning algorithms we're sending pregnancy products to this daughter of a, uh, you know, who uh, was target ads and this father was incensed about it. And it turns out she actually was, was pregnant um, right. because the, the selection of products oh. she bought prior indicated that that was the case. And so the greater problem you're going to have is that the machines are too good at knowing exactly what you want. I mean, one of the, I think one of the interesting uh, futures uh, you could be looking at is sort of like WALL-E, if you've seen the movie WALL-E, where uh, our machines get so good at marketing that we will all be perpetually poor because we will have no impulse control. The algorithm will say, we know this is exactly what you want right now. And you're like, how did you know I want a bit chocolate chip ice cream right now at 10.15 on a Monday? <laughs> and then there's a drone outside your door delivering it. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. So Doc Searles wrote a book called The Intention Economy, which if you haven't read it, I, I will just say it's a very technical read. It was very <laughs> difficult for me to get through because it's not in, in any way attempting to be conversational, but it specifically talks about how we're moving into this model where consumers want to be able to raise a hand and say, hey, I'm in the market for a car, and because I've raised my hand, now I'm accepting your advertisements, if you will, versus um, marketers essentially trying to figure out that I want a car, right? So uh, if we move into this intention economy where now consumers are the ones who drive marketing coming towards them for times when AI like starts to predict things that we didn't want them to predict, uh, what would that look like? And how could we give consumers the ability to say, hey, I actually am open to your advertising. I want it, but then shut it off the minute that they're done. Boy, you know, that's uh, it's really, the, that's the place of science fiction right now where we see all these different crazy movies that have come out that show us kind of this placated world that we live in. And I mean, you go back to the Matrix, you saw that kind of a world. You go back to just even this year that came out, Blade Runner 2049 or whatever it was. I mean, these movies show kind of like a society where we're all sheep kind of sucking down what's happening to us and rolling with it. And the question is, is will the American consumer say yes, or even the global consumer say yes to this and just go along with it? Or will we be smart? And 90% will say yes, and 10% will be smart. And that's going to differentiate probably the well-to-do and those that are quote unquote middle class, but are really just meant to fuel the rich. And I, I mean, I think that might be a little bit of a, a negative view on our ability to understand what's happening to us. But if past performance is any indication, you're going to have a lot of people that are just giving away their lives. And uh, buzzword alert, but this is already in process 
with uh, built on blockchain technologies. So what's happening is, uh, you know, advertisers and marketers and companies are trying to figure out how do we use the encrypted public ledger nature of blockchain for people to do exactly that, to raise their hand and say, I want a car that does this or I want this. And because it's distributed and, and it has the, the tagging and the hashing built into it, uh, a company could subscribe to that and say, I can fulfill that request. And, you know, you see some of that already in a very primitive form with, you know, services like lending tree and stuff. But thanks to the, the, the nature of the way blockchain technology works, it will be much more feasible and scalable for everyone to do it rather than uh, just a lending tree. And because it would be something that would be consumer initiated probably on a mobile device, uh, it would be a lot easier for the consumer. Right now you have to go to a website and fill out 40 forms and all this crap and, you know, that having your credentials stored in part of the chain will let you then forward it on uh, as appropriate. But I, I, Jeff, I think your numbers are off. I think it's going to be 99 to one, you know, on a good day. And what it, what will be interesting will be not uh, the trouble with AI and robotic process automation is that unlike human workers, there is no distribution of capital. So it makes income inequality worse because the machines do the work, but don't need a paycheck or health care. They just need occasional maintenance. And so the owners of intellectual property uh, will be the ones who will then get the financial reward as well. Love today's guest? Here's how you can learn more. IBM estimates that companies don't use up to 90% of the data they collect, so-called dark data. Companies lose money from storage costs to security breaches to lost business opportunities and sales. Brain Trust Insights can help you light up your dark data. From simple things like Google Analytics best practices to complex machine learning projects, we'll help you save time and make more money from your data. Visit us at BrainTrustInsights.com. The Conscious Marketing Podcast is produced by WCR Studios. Want to have your show produced by us? Learn more at WCRStudios.com. Am I striking a chord for you today? You can hire me too. Learn how at ConsciousMarketingInstitute.com. Just click on services. And now let's get back to the show. The owners of intellectual property uh, will be the ones who will then get the financial reward as well. So it's interesting. So for those who aren't familiar with blockchain, blockchain is a technology that essentially is a decentralized autonomous ledger of information. You can put all kinds of things on it. It's most famously known because it is the backing that takes uh, care of all of the Bitcoin transactions, which have gotten a lot of buzz. And our good friend Joel Com now has the number one podcast called the Bad Crypto Podcast on uh, talking about blockchain and, and Bitcoin and all that technology. It is interesting, though, that you bring it up, Chris, because it's, it's true that in our current state, where we are today, you could essentially describe humanity as a lot of sheep that are in this, we're on this hamster wheel, right? We're on the hamster wheel of success. We value ourselves based on what marketers put out and tell us to value. And we have created a very effective social conditioning engine that I would say has really in many ways, dumb down society. We, we haven't become a society of independent thinkers so much as we have become a society of individuals who think we're independently thinking, but when you really start to look at the choices that we're making and, and look at it in a very honest mirror, you start to realize, oh, wow, like I did everything I was told to do or everything I put on myself. We'll even take accountability and say, that's what I wanted to do. But it was really something that was conditioned in us from either school or marketing or parents or whatever. Or fake book. <laughs> or fake book, right? <laughs> and so, and so, what I've noticed though, this is uh, this is really interesting because what I've noticed is that we are at this interesting tipping point with humanity, where we have people who are still in the machine, you know, and, 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 and to call them sheep really isn't fair. It's simply that they're unaware, right? That's it. They don't have the lens to look and say, wait a second, why am I making this decision? Where did this belief system come from? Is this what I really want? Or is this something that I inherited or that uh, I received from someone else? But there are a huge number of people who are waking up and saying, wait a second, this engine that I've been on 
this hamster wheel of going to work from nine to five and coming home to get a paycheck to buy things in order to serve my family's needs is a hamster wheel. And I, this isn't the life that I want. And so we have many entrepreneurs who have gone out and who have started successful businesses, inter internet businesses, even, uh, I, I look at people like John Lee Dumas, right. Who starts the pod, he basically starts a podcast. He starts podcasters paradise. And he's literally the last conversation I had with him. He tells me he works four days a month. I mean, that is the dream, right. To have complete freedom. And those who are doing that are, opening up access to things that as humans, we didn't know we had the ability to do. And it starts with a conversation around consciousness. And that when you start to open yourself to that, I am bigger than this human experience. My life is more than this lifetime. And there's something bigger and there's a bigger reason for me to be here. And those who have been afforded the ability to explore those questions in depth are coming up with some very interesting answers. Mind you, blockchain being one of them, Bitcoin being one of them saying, hey, what if the economy looked totally different? What if humanity looked totally different? And I'm curious as to, to your perspective on, is this going to actually push the next evolution of humanity where we break out of the chains, if you will, we break out of the machines and we say, Hey, wait, this isn't what we wanted to build. Um, my, by the way, everything on this planet actually is free. We've decided as a species to add this thing called money. And as a result, 50% of our society doesn't have enough food or water or housing and lives on less than $2 and 50%, 50 cents a day, perhaps the machine is broken and we need to change it. No, I mean, we have it built into our, even our religious texts literally say, <clears throat> so-and-so's deity is my shepherd. Like we literally agree as part of our socioeconomic and religious culture and culture that um, we want to be sheep. Um, <laughs> and it's in multiple religions that you'll find variations on that phrase. That's the na that's human nature. Human nature is built that way, um, and I think the only way you'll get to a point where that's not the case is where you, when you finally, probably in the next hundred or two hundred years, <clears throat> make the transition where we begin embedding um, technology within our minds, uh, physically embedding chips and processors that then give us the ability to change our programming. Until then, um, you will be saddled with the, the good and the bad of humanity's last 50,000 years. None of what you're seeing is new, right? People controlling other people, we've been doing that since we can beat each other ahead with sticks, right? <laughs> um, the money, the, you know, money was invented something on the order of like 5,000 years ago uh, and has changed forms. And it is equally true that folks always want to achieve a certain level of power, however your society defines that. And that once in power, you know, the thing you fear the most is losing that power. Uh, that makes into Star Wars movies. <laughs> so uh, the technologies just let us do things faster. But uh, like all things, money, power, technology, it, it amplifies who you already are. So if you are a person who's more aware, you'll be able to use technology for that. If you are a person who is more abusive, technology allows you to do that too. That's just human nature. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, when I went to Georgetown, I studied uh, communications culture and technology was the name of the degree, which was this big, ugly kind of smorgasbord that you could do whatever you want with. But one of the things that they taught us in our initial classes was to look at cultural references to see what society is processing when it comes to technology. And so like, that's why I brought up the science fiction earlier. And, and I think, again, you can look at that reference model and some of the popular memes that you see within narratives in society today. And like, I'll give you two versions of it. One is the Star Trek version. In the Star Trek version, there is no money anymore. Everybody's free. And we have this utopian society where we no longer process you know, whether or not you have this or that, we can all have that. Instead, we're out exploring the universe and trying to make it better. However, we are always under threat of being enslaved again by foreign species like the Borg or whatever it might be. And so, like, that's the great Star Trek narrative, right, which is your vision. 
And then there's like the hands made tale, right? Or any other type of version where we find ourselves enslaved in an even darker, worse, feudal version of it. And, and I would say that um, what we're probably seeing is a much more subtle version of that. And we do have those entrepreneurs that break free and then start the frame bridges of the world and create these great enterprises that uh, go out and be successful. But those are really kind of, I, I would almost say the red herrings, you know, they're the ones that kind of are waved in front of us. Like you could be this if you only had the courage to do it. And in right. reality, most of us won't do it. And most of us will just try to pull away a little nest egg and retire somewhere very nicely and have a good life and put our kids through school. And that's okay. And we've survived. We're okay being a sheep if we can do that. Cause that's a good life. And, and, and you know, I, I, I hate saying that. I really hate thinking of ourselves in that way. And I'm sure other people that are listening to this feel that way. But unfortunately, as Chris has said, I mean, this is, this is our history and we see it over and over again for every Warren Buffett, you have a hundred Donald Trump's. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, I guess it, it really, like, it, it's all about the lens that you take, right? So like in our history, yes, it's true that the hero's journey, right? Heroes, villains, and victims have existed since the beginning of society. And even as we look forward, we assume that that's going to continue to is, exist. But I also bring you to like the, the part of history where we have made massive change and massive leaps. Like the fact that, you know, uh, set, you know, you just look at like Martin Luther King, right? And now you have African Americans who hold, you know, the president's office, right? That have basically progressed from being shunned from society and being the workers, the enslaved force, to now being very much a part of our leadership conversation. And so I just hold hope that those who truly want a different way of life and those who truly are willing to go through and break against the grain and to do things differently, that we can create a society that ultimately is better for everyone. I think that when we disempower ourselves by saying, oh, that's just the way it is, or that's the way it's always been, we forget that we as humans have infinite potential. And what I've actually found, Chris, is that you can upgrade your programming quite easily through meditation, actually. And you can, I mean, literally like as simple as going like this, you can remove negative thought patterns and unwanted conditioning. And I found that through experimentation and testing and opening myself to the possibility that what if I don't understand anything? What if everything I believe is not true and there is something different out there? And as I did that, I started to find that we have all of this ability and even to the point of being able to uh, harmonize the human magnetic field. If you talked to me five years ago, Chris, we've had many conversations um, about technology and so forth in the past. You talked to me five years ago, I never would have told you that I thought it was possible for another human to harmonize the human energy field. But I, in fact, have found that it's true. And that every time that I do these group sessions where I'm like going to wave my hands, which should, it still boggles my mind. I put on sound healing music. I wave my hands and people walk away. And a month later say, I lost 25 pounds. My chronic suicidal depression that I've had my entire life is gone for a year. I haven't thought about suicide. I've actually made major changes in my life. And and I have multiple testimonials coming back. And I was like the person who never would have had that conversation. I would have told you that it was all foo-foo-y, crazy stuff. But I'm finding that when you test it and you open yourself and say, okay, I'm going to run an experiment. I'm going to do meditation and I'm going to listen to the messages coming in and I'm just going to see what happened, which actually led to this podcast being recorded. I had no intention of reviving the episode season two of this podcast until I did a meditation Friday morning and I saw that I was like, it was time. And then I saw doing a panel versus doing just two people. And I saw this new format. And then by literally Monday morning at nine 30, we are now recording season two. So I guess, uh, I guess what are your thoughts on just like opening your mind to, to new possibilities and testing them and see what works for you? I think that is more than appropriate for people to do. <clears throat> I certainly have been doing that for you know a quarter of a century myself in the, the martial arts practice. The challenge that you want to overcome is not the accessibility or the technology or the methodology, but getting people to want to change. 
and at scale in society and even when people are presented with hey here's a better outcome you still don't see a whole lot of people opting for that in fact um depending on your perspective about how uh how you view the world um we we have elections every four years in the united states and and close to 50 percent of people think that the other 50 percent of people uh have just done something horrific um and so until you resolve that and the ability for people to actually choose something better for them you won't get that level of adoption and certainly will not see that reflected in the way that uh, you want people to do business yeah i think uh i, I agree uh, with Chris, I mean, I think in a sense, though, it, what you're talking about is in the Zen sense or the Buddhist sense, enlightenment. And once you become aware, really, um, uh, then you change or evolve. And uh, I, I question how many people really want to be aware. And I think, like, sometimes that when we have these outbursts, like we just have with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, I wonder how many people who express outrage were actually aware. Uh, I would bet you that one third of those people actually knew that their data was being used or had been aware of it in the past and just decided to quietly put that information away and forget about it. And uh, when you think about it that way, it's kind of um, sad, but I do think that there's great freedom in being aware. And I think that is through evolution. Uh, and that is how evolution will occur. If we are mindful, if we are conscious, as you say, um, then we can achieve that. And I think the real great marketing future for those of us that do a good job and care about our, or have compassion for our, not our uh, consumers, but the people that actually invest in us, um, mm -hmm. then we, we will evolve and we will do the things that we need to do to make great relationships with them. Uh, but I, I do think that that's just a, a level of presence and mindfulness that most people don't want to embrace. I, yeah, I, the Japanese would call it, um, there's a concept in Japanese and Tibetan Buddhism, the, the Vajra, so sort of the diamond thunderbolt. And the expression is like a, is a flash of lightning in the darkness. Now, when that happens, like a Cambridge Analytica, there's two fundamental reactions. Either you run and hide because it's really bright and loud, or you go, hey, I, I just saw something. Quick, find a flashlight. I want to see what that thing was that was, you know, that I just saw for a, a moment. Kind of to Jeff's point earlier, 99.99% of people are going to run and hide. And, you know, there'll be one person that's going, uh, does anyone else have a flashlight? <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. And I mean, even with the Cambridge Analytica thing, the interesting thing is that Facebook didn't really see a decline in usage, truly, you know, and people went right back to it. Why? Because it's an engine, because it's become part of our social grain. And so I'll just close out by saying that as marketers, but yes, I think that our role, the opportunity that we have is to inspire humanity to want to change. And that if we can start to be more honest and transparent about what we're doing, if we can be more mindful about the messages that we're putting out, things like removing the hero's journey, it's actually quite simple. You take and you create stories and everything is prolificated with heroes, villains, and victims. What happens in society? We have heroes, villains, and victims. If we start telling real stories about real humans who are doing real things, I think that we can be part of the solution versus part of the engine that is essentially training people to be sheep, we could actually start to train people to wake up and to say, hey, who am I? How did I end up on a planet with seven and a half billion people? Why am I on Earth and not Saturn? And what is my purpose for being here? And how can I step into my full potential as an individual versus trying to be part of something that is considered a collective that's all moving the same direction? How can I uniquely be myself unapologetically in a world that is changing very rapidly how can I be a part of that change? So 
Thank you both so much. What an amazing episode and conversation. And I, I truly do appreciate you both coming on. Uh, we'll give more information about Chris and his new data consultancy. If you're looking for somebody to help you with GDPR, I highly recommend Chris is my top choice. That's why we brought him on this conversation because he is truly a data ninja and that is his superpower. And Jeff Livingston to help with any kind of campaign development, messaging strategy, any of that stuff, he is amazing. And then I am obviously the founder of the Conscious Marketing Institute. So if you're looking at how you can wake up your marketing team to the realities of the powers that we hold and how we can make the world a better place, you can go to ConsciousMarketingInstitute.com. Thank you all, have an amazing day. Thanks. Thank you. Music for the Conscious Marketing Podcast is provided by Sophia Fleming. Please check out our new album, Collection of Reflections. Just search for Sophia Fleming online. Thank you for joining the Conscious Marketing Podcast and taking a look in the mirror with us. We hope you found you learned something new about yourself and have another tool to help raise the bar of consciousness in our industry. If you liked what you heard, please take the time to give us a review. Every review matters and helps another marketer find their way here. Want to have next week's episode automatically queued up for your commute? Remember to subscribe before you leave. We thank you for your support. Please go to ConsciousMarketingInstitute.com for show notes, links, and other awesome resources. It is our honor to serve you. Now, let's go change the world.